Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. Being Irish and having the uh, differences between Great Britain and Ireland, there may have been a small kernel somewhere of rebellion in him against Great Britain in the first place. That's Jeff Dacus. He recently published a profile of Stephen Moylan in the Journal of the American Revolution. On this episode, we talk about the life of an immigrant, the experiences he has in the colonies, and what ultimately leads him to revolution. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is brought to you by West Home Publishing, publisher of the new book, Daniel Morgan, A Revolutionary Life, by Albert Louis Zamboni. Available now. Welcome back, everyone. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. As always, be sure to start out your week by visiting the Journal of the American Revolution, www.allthingsliberty.com. Visit it a few times a week. Check it out every day. Uh, even if there's nothing new, there's plenty to read in the archives. Every week, uh, new articles are published, editorials, discussions, uh, roundtables of all sorts uh, dealing with the 18th century. Uh, definitely worth making part of your daily routine. If that's too much for you, you can sign up at www.allthingsliberty.com to join a newsletter group. So in your email, you'll get an update every time there's something new posted. It is a wonderful way to make sure that history is a part of your daily life. Uh, So please check it out. Today, we're going to talk with author Jeff Dacus about his new article uh, on a man named Stephen Moylan, a name you're probably not familiar with. And it kind of gets into a larger discussion, which I think is important for this program, uh, of things historians do or things as a society that we believe. And one of the things we love to talk about, whether you be talking about school teachers, politicians, uh, folks on the street, uh, your crazy uncle at Thanksgiving, uh, is the Founding Fathers. We love that word. I'm guilty as charged of using it. Uh, but it's a word we really want to sort of dissect, I think. What is a Founding Father? I mean, what qualifies you to be in that very exclusive group? Uh, maybe you signed the Declaration of Independence. Maybe that makes you a Founding Father, certainly. Alexander Hamilton, for example, did not sign the Declaration of Independence. Uh, Maybe you could sign the U.S. Constitution. We know Hamilton did that. Thomas Jefferson, the author of the Declaration, didn't sign the Constitution. So it's one of those sort of difficult ideas, uh, one that as historians we try to stay away from because it's so kind of ephemeral, it's so fleeting. Uh, Who is a founding father and who isn't? Personally, in a professional sense, I don't use the term. And that, of course, is no disrespect to those people who signed the Declaration of Independence or the United States Constitution or the Articles of Confederation. We don't like to talk about that. Uh, or the men who actually fought in the war. Uh, it's because 
to use the term founding father uh, is a term of exclusivity. It's a term that says here are a very select group of people uh, who did something very amazing uh, and by keying in on their lives and only their lives can we truly understand the 18th century uh, and the American Revolution. That's not what the revolution was. That's not what colonial America is or was. Uh, and that's one of the reasons I love to study it. It's because you know, the results of 1776 and, and by extension 1783 were really the actions of many different people from many different walks of life. I prefer to use terms like the revolutionary generation uh, or colonial America because that's a term that we are learning so much more about. It's broadening, it's expanding. We're realizing it's so much more than just uh, these few dozen people in this in this chamber in Philadelphia. Uh, and that's one of the great things about history and also about the Journal of the American Revolution. Because not all of these people who have these incredible, dynamic, fantastic stories are ever going to have a book written about them. Maybe they did one really amazing thing in an otherwise very normal, mundane life. Jeff Dacus today is going to tell us about one of those people. Stephen Moylan, an Irish immigrant came to this country, did some very incredible things in a very short amount of time, and is actually one of the earliest people to use the phrase United States of America. I mean, that's a lot of what Dacus is going to talk about and what he's written about in his article, which of course you can find on the Journal of the American Revolution website. You're never going to find a, a, a book about Moylan. You're never going to find a biography about him. He is not Hamilton. They are not going to have a hit Broadway musical about him. But there's merit in studying his life. And again, if you only focus on the founding fathers as opposed to the entire founding generation, these are the great stories that fall through the cracks. These are the great stories that you miss. So if you find a person you think is worthy of a brief study, but maybe not enough for a full monograph, Submit an article to the Journal of the American Revolution. Maybe you'll get it published. There's so many wonderful stories about who these people were. White, black, Native American, Jewish, Christian, Muslim. Colonial America was filled with a, a, a whole myriad of peoples who contributed uh, to the founding of this country. And author Jeff Dacus is going to tell us about one today. So without further ado, I'm pleased to introduce Jeff Dacus. Enjoy the interview. Jeff Dacus, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Jeff, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, I'm a retired U.S. history teacher. I taught uh, eighth graders for 35 years. I also retired from the Marine Corps. I had 23 years active in reserve. Uh, I was in tanks, served in the uh, first Persian Gulf War, Desert Storm. I live in Vancouver with my wife. I have two grown daughters who live in Seattle and uh, Los Angeles. And now I spend my time writing and uh, doing informational speaking. How did you first come to history as a profession? Well, I don't know when it, I decided it would be my profession, but uh, when I was young, my father was a U.S. history teacher, high school U.S. history teacher. And I can remember the first big books that I read, the first big books that I looked at, 
were high school history books. When I was young, four or five years old, I was reading my father's uh, U.S. history textbooks. So I developed an interest for it. And uh, when I got out of my first stint in the Marine Corps, I decided to be a, a history teacher and uh, got college degrees in uh, uh, both teaching and history. The Revolutionary Era has so many big names in it. Names we would recognize. Some, of course, maybe a lot of people wouldn't. Uh, so let me ask you, what was it about Moylan that really drew your interest? Moylan is one of those characters that I find really fascinating. He's not at the top of the uh, founding fathers, so to speak. Uh, for, for a historian like you, you know all the, the names of the able generals that we had, Nathaniel Green and Horatio Gates and, of course, Washington and Arnold and the big names. Uh, but he's kind of the second tier of those field grade officers, the officers uh, that I I find the most interesting because uh, they're going to shoulder the burden. We talk about the professionalism of the British Army. Well, it's going to be these men who are going to fight against the British Army, and they're they're kind of in between the generals and the, the enlisted men, and yet they're going to perform ably um, at their level. I think of uh, People like uh, uh, Joseph Silly and uh, uh, Stuart, I can't remember Stuart's first name, but there's a lot of the intermediate level guys that commanded the regiments and brigades and small units throughout the war that really uh, proved that uh, the American Army could meet with the British because of the innate ability of these intelligent young men. Uh, And that's kind of what I like those guys in between one of the really interesting parts of this story at least in my estimation is that moylan is an immigrant he's from ireland uh so talk a little bit about what drew him initially to the new world and what was life like for him here well uh he's he's a probably i get the impression that he's a typical uh stereotype of an irishman he's very uh outgoing uh gregarious man. Uh, He's raised in Ireland, and when it comes time for him to uh, be educated, there are certain restrictions on education for the Irish. Uh, England's uh, policies towards Ireland were not really benevolent, and his family decided to send him elsewhere for education. He he went to uh, England for a while, and studied there, and then was sent to France, where he also studied. And his family being merchants, part of his education was to learn uh, the the international trade that the family was involved in at that time, and the British Empire made it very lucrative. So he was sent after his education in France. He went to uh, Lisbon, Portugal, and ran the family house in Lisbon, and Right before the revolution broke out, he was sent to America and settled in Philadelphia in 1768 uh, to start merchant business there. It's really, I think, a fascinating change to go from someone living their life as normal, sort of in this East Coast elite class, uh, to joining the Continental Army, effectively becoming a rebel against the empire for which you were a part of. Could you talk about that transition for Moylan? Well, I'm, 
it may be just part of a lengthy process that began as a young man in Ireland, being Irish and having the uh, differences between Great Britain and Ireland. There may have been a small kernel somewhere of rebellion in him against Great Britain in the first place. And like all immigrants uh, to the colonies, he may not have the firm uh, relationship with the mother country that other people like Thomas Jefferson and George Washington, they, they were Englishmen to the core. And for them, it was a great leap to uh, rebel against their mother country. But uh, for an Irishman, uh, it might not have been so difficult for him to do that, especially being a merchant. He's went through all of the British imperialistic policies that became increasingly uh, hard to deal with uh, from the first navigation acts on through uh, the Townsend acts and the others that went after the uh, colonial um, economy and it probably affected him a lot and it was probably easy for him to uh, become a revolutionary. It seems incredible where this story goes, but Moylan were very quickly develop a relationship with George Washington. Uh, how does that, that relationship come together? Well, his, his career uh, was helped along by a friend of his, uh, John Dickinson, who was a, a member of the uh, Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania delegation to the uh, Continental Congress. And he had business dealings with uh, Moylan. And when the war began, Dickinson recommended him to George Washington as a young man who was intelligent and able and would fill any type of job that Washington needed. And George Washington at that time was looking for um, young men of some prominence, young men who were intelligent, could do his thinking for him. He wanted people that he could uh, have on his staff that would assist him in writing orders and would be able to end his thoughts, kind of think the way he did and be able to put it into words and Moylan fit that very well, and he became an aide on Washington's staff. And the two of them, Washington and Moylan, would be uh, uh, friends for the rest of uh, Washington's life. They would uh, uh, be very close. Uh, he would remain loyal to Washington through all the different uh, ins and outs of uh, people um, that maybe looked down on Washington for his uh, original his beginnings were not fortuitous uh, the, the, after Boston, his defeats in New York and those places uh, put a strain on relationships between Congress and other people with Washington. But Moylan was always loyal to him and he performed the duties that uh, Washington required of him. And so uh, it was a mutual uh, relationship that was beneficial for both of them. Moylan's career seems to peak, at least at first when he becomes quartermaster general of the army. Um, could you talk about uh, how that happened and what his tenure of office was like? Well, he was actually appointed the, the muster master of the army, which is kind of an administrative post that uh, isn't really glorious or anything. He just kind of makes sure that the records of the army are kept and supplies move and kind of uh, behind the scenes. But while he's performing the duties of the muster master, he assists Washington and uh, 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 Glover 
in putting together the first American Navy there in Boston to blockade the British as much as possible and to uh, go after British shipping. And he does it so well that when the post of quartermaster general, which is another administrative post, but it's a a post that involves a lot of uh, supply uh, requisition and things that a merchant might know, um, Washington thinks that he would be a good choice for that because of the fact that he's performed so well with the uh, requisitioning supplies for the first Navy. So put together his merchant background with the uh, things he's done as a muster master, and uh, he's a natural for it. When uh, Thomas Mifflin resigns as the quartermaster because it's a thankless job, and it's very difficult for a new army that's just being put together. Uh, They don't know whether to get their supplies from the states or from the Continental Congress or uh, from individuals, how do they set up a supply system is very difficult. And Mifflin did fairly well, but uh, he had enough of it. And when he resigned, Washington put Moylan forward as the next quartermaster. Would you describe him as successful? Unfortunately, he took over right at the wrong time, right when the campaign around New York City was taking place in uh, 1776. And to be honest, it's hard to tell. It looks like he did his best, but uh, I found several references that were not very complimentary about his abilities. And Washington um, said some things to him that maybe you need to work harder or something's going on, uh, you know, and they were kind of uh, couched in uh, diplomatic terms, but you could tell that Washington was not happy with his efforts. And he finally. Uh, resigned again, uh, as Mifflin did. It was just a really tough job, and Mifflin took over again. But Moylan, to his credit, when he resigns after all this criticism, not only from Washington but other officers, he stays on as a a volunteer aide for George Washington, again demonstrating his loyalty both to Washington and the Patriot cause. A resignation is is probably a low point, I would think, for him. But he kind of gets a rebirth as a volunteer aide. He actually leads men on the battlefield. How did that opportunity come about? Well, when Washington decides to put the cavalry together uh, under one uh, officer, and he decides on uh, the Polish officer, uh, Count Pulaski, um, he also decides to give one of the regiments to Stephen Moylan. And Moylan looks on it as a a great opportunity to be a a cavalry officer, to not be an administrator anymore, and he can be out and actually be involved in the war. It's a great opportunity for a young man. And the cavalry arm of the uh, Continental Army was late in developing. At first, it was hard for the Continental Army to sustain any type of logistic support for themselves, but Horses and cavalry involves a lot more uh, logistics and a lot more support. And it was not until this time in late 1776 where they're able to actually form the four regiments that would form the core of the uh, Continental Cavalry. And it was a great opportunity for Moylan to get in on the ground floor and be one of the first commanders. He was given a regiment of the cavalry, of dragoons, actually. 
What did the remainder of Moylan's military career look like? Well, Stephen Moylan was, once he took over the cavalry, he was involved in nearly every major action. Uh, after that, he was involved in the what's called the Forage War, where uh, the British and the Americans, when they would go into uh, camp for the winter or they would just be inactive, the light infantry and cavalry would skirmish with each other as parties went out to confiscate supplies and to get uh, the logistics from the uh, civilians around the camps. And the two sides, British and, and Americans, would often fight against each other, small battles. Moylan was uh, particularly adept at this small wars type of fighting, and he and his men would uh, both get supplies for the army and fight against the, the small parties sent out by the British to uh, get supplies for their army also. He uh, participated at the Battle of Monmouth in particular. He only had a small group of cavalry. He only had about 60 men with him, but he provided uh, reconnaissance, and he also uh, harassed the British as they retreated from uh, Philadelphia in June of 1778. And he is mentioned several times uh, by Washington as being very important in that campaign. Uh, he also went to Yorktown at the end of the war. He was serving, and again, he only had a small party of soldiers with him. Uh, they don't know. I've seen various figures, anywhere from 30 to 80 cavalrymen. But he participated in the final action at Yorktown. So his his combat experience was very uh, I don't know, uh, different uh, from a lot of other men, but he did participate also in the major engagements of the war. One of the things that your article points out very adeptly, I think, is that Moylan holds a special place in history as one of the first people to use the phrase United States of America. Do we know the context of that usage? Well, I, I don't think he intended anything for it to be uh, uh, sticking or, or staying. I don't think he was intentionally trying to uh, label it, but he understood that there was an opening um, possibly as an ambassador to Spain or one of the other foreign countries. And in writing to uh, one of uh, Washington's aides, he asked, if he could have that job, if he could be an ambassador or minister uh, to Spain. And during that letter, he couched it in terms, he, he said, I should vastly like to go with full and ample powers from the United States of America to Spain. So it's just thrown in there. I'm not sure that, that he exactly knew what he was saying, but if you check the correspondence of that time period, most people are referring to the colonies as the United Colonies or the United Provinces. Even in the uh, Declaration of Independence, there are times when it says United Colonies, and it doesn't use the, the term United States of America throughout the document. So for him to do that before the Declaration of Independence uh, makes it unique. And uh, like I said in the article, quite possibly the first time anybody referred to us as the United States of America. What does life look like for Moylan after the war? Does he ever get the job that he sought? 
Well, that that job that he was trying to get as an ambassador was actually right about the same time he was uh, being sized up for the uh, quartermaster general post. So that was during the war, early in the war. After the war, he uh, continues to uh, participate in uh, small business. He's, he uh, starts a farm. Uh, he served as a register of deeds in this county. Uh, he was a major general of militia, commissioner of loans for Pennsylvania, which was a position that he was appointed by George Washington. And he continued to correspond with George Washington up until uh, George Washington's death, right before uh, his death. He also was very, very uh, involved in taking care of uh, the Irish people in Pennsylvania. He was a uh, member, he started a member of uh, the Friendly Sons of St. Patrick, which was a Irish organization that helped uh, both Irish living in Philadelphia and those immigrants that are going to come afterwards in large numbers. He was very involved in that. I think this is an interesting question for anyone who works in the field of biography. It's one that I considered, uh, uh, quite frankly, regularly, and I still do. Uh, but if you had to encapsulate why Moylan is important. Uh, what would you say? I mean, what should be the, the legacy of, of Moylan? Well, I, I would again say uh, that Moylan is one of those people that were really important to the American effort. If those intelligent, uh, middle-class men of some means, he was a merchant, but he saw that there was something important happening he was a recent immigrant. He had seen uh, the oppression of, of Great Britain in Ireland. He knew what that was like. And he was someone that knew something had to be done. The continued policies of Great Britain uh, were egregious to the, the uh, colonies and seemed unfair. And uh, he served honorably as an officer in that uh, war. Uh, his health was severely uh, damaged by his time he, after the Battle of Yorktown, he had to re resign uh, because of his ill health, but uh, he served honorably in that great experiment in which the outcome for him would have meant losing everything. If he would have, uh, if the colonies would have lost the war, I'm sure an Irish immigrant who had fought against Great Britain would not have done well in the post-war world of uh, British occupation. And he might have been the famous words at the end of the declaration, he would have uh, lost his life as well as his fortune, but he would have never lost his sacred honor because he fought throughout the war. Jeff Dacus, thank you for joining us. Do you have any parting words? No, I just appreciate the Journal of the American Revolution, and I hope that uh, a lot of these uh, podcasts are made and get the word out about the American Revolution, which seems to be one of the uh, less uh, studied aspects of American history. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.